So I remember the night very clearly. I was a sophomore in high school. I'm sorry, a sophomore in college. I said I remembered it clearly and then <laughs> messed that up. Sophomore in college, sitting on the second floor of the University of Indianapolis Library, working on a paper that I'm sure was due the next day because I tend to procrastinate with things. And as I'm working, I get a text message from a buddy that says, hey, I got tickets to the Colts game tonight. Do you want to go? Of course, paper takes a back seat. Yes, let's go to the game. And it was a unique opportunity this season of my life because we, I, had a, I had an opportunity to know Hunter Smith, who was the punter for the Colts. He led worship for our college ministry on occasion. And so when we got his tickets, they were really good seats. And these were his tickets on a Monday night game. And this is at the height of when the Indianapolis Colts were really good. Peyton Manning, Marvin Harrison, Edron James, all of them were doing their thing. And we were playing the Steelers that night on Monday night football. And the Steeler fans know, as we have some here in the crowd, that they travel well. And so usually when they're in the house, it's a pretty raucous environment. And so we get there, the streets are going crazy. I'm excited for the game. We're sitting there, I'm sitting second or third row up. And first play of the game, Peyton Manning throws an 80-yard touchdown pass to Marvin Harrison. He goes untouched in the end zone, touchdown. And the place went crazy. We're jumping around. We're high-fiving. I'm sitting next to Edron James's brother, and I'm giving him a high-five like we go way back. <laughs> it was a time that I will never forget. I don't even remember how the game ended, if the Colts won or not. But I remember that moment. I remember that pass and thinking, I can't believe that I'm here. I'm going crazy. I don't care who knows it or what they think of me. Now, if you know me, you know that that is not normally my personality. I am normally a stick in the mud. I am normally, I'm kind of a little bit of a curmudgeon. Um, I'm kind of one of those guys that I can't wait till I get old and I can yell at the neighbor kids to get off my grass. Um, that is more of me. I, I tend to be a little bit more serious than I am joyful. Joy is something that I have to work for at times, something I have to fight for. So this series has been really challenging for me and thinking about writing a message and standing up in front of you and talking about living with joy and having the joy of the Lord. This week I've been confronted often with how little I have joy at times and how sometimes I really have to work to choose it. But there are some environments that naturally kind of bring that joy and excitement out. And I think we all have that in common. Whether it's at a basketball game, at a football game, whether that's at a dance recital, whether that's at a concert, whatever it is, whatever gets you excited and causes you to shout and sing and not worry about what everyone else thinks, we all have that place somewhere. And when we get to experience it, it's exhilarating. When you finally push past that place of not caring what other people think, and are truly able to enjoy the moment and what you're experiencing, man, is there so much freedom in that. And as someone who struggles with that, I can identify that I long for that at times. But one place that I tend not to experience that very much, if I'm honest with you, is here on Sunday mornings. And that's my own doing. And maybe you can relate as well. Because one thing we know is there is a proper way to act when we're in church. We walk in, we put the smile on our face, we're glad to be here. 
We, and then we start singing a song, and, and maybe in the song we're not quite sure, but for most of us, if we're going to get really excited and if we're really going to worship during a song here at Calvary, we live about right here, right? Anything above here, we start getting a little bit nervous, right? And maybe occasionally we'll get someone to do this, but to get both hands up in the air, that get, that's a little bit crazy. I'm, I'm going to come back, and I'm just going to kind of settle in right here, Right? But you put us in Mackey Arena when Purdue hits 19 threes against Iowa, and we're high-fiving everyone we know. We're hooting and hollering. It is an exciting time. But here at church, we're going to be proper. We're going to be controlled. We're going to make sure people don't hear us sing, because if they hear us sing, it's going to be really embarrassing. And guys, I know it's difficult. Hear me say, I know as for men especially, sometimes this can be really difficult in a church service, but I encourage you, as we practice joy, as we start to experience that more in your life, to allow it to come out and not try to, to, not try to control it as much. In the middle, we're in the middle of this series on joy, and we've been using Rick Warren's quote, and so I want to read that together just to remind us how we're defining joy during the series. Rick Warren says this, Joy is, a, is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in every situation. We've talked about how truly experiencing joy means that we first need to realize what we were saved from. We need to recognize our brokenness and our need for someone to pay the debt that we could not pay. And we saw this and took a look at this through the life of King David in Psalm 51. Last week, Daniel talked about how the joy of the Lord is our strength and how it sustains us when we go through difficult times. And we saw this through the lives of the Israelites in the book of Nehemiah. And today we're going to take a closer look at Psalm 100 and how the joy of the Lord produces thanksgiving in our hearts. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 100. It's a short psalm. In the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, sometimes you have really long psalms. Other times you have really short ones. This is five verses. And this is known as the Thanksgiving psalm. This is the song or the prayer that has been prayed by God's people for centuries. And we're going to read it today. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He, is, he made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give him thanks and bless his name for the Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. Five simple verses. Some of them you might be familiar with. And they unlock for us some insights in experiencing the joy of the Lord. First thing I want to point out is there are a lot of imperatives in this, which means there are a lot of commands, not suggestions, but commands. The first command we come across is this, that we should shout to the Lord triumphantly, all of the earth. Again, a command, not a suggestion. I really, in, in, what I really want to do and contemplate is coming out here yelling and screaming, hooting and hollering but I felt that'd be a little bit distracting. And honestly, it was a little bit scary for me, so I didn't do it. 
But we're commanded to shout to the Lord because of the joy that we have. And as I stated earlier, sometimes when we gather for church, this is something that we do not do a great job practicing. We don't shout, we don't worship, we're not as joyful because we are so concerned about what everybody else thinks. But we read, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. When we experience the joy of the Lord, it causes us to be thankful. And out of that thankful heart, shouts of joy, songs of worship with glad hearts should be our appropriate response. The thing I love about this is even when we struggle at times to shout to the Lord, nature, it says here, all the earth. And there are times when nature shouts for joy. I've got a couple pictures that remind us of that. When you look at the trees change and fall and the exuberant colors that come forth, to me that is the earth shouting with joy that God has created us. And this is how we are going to put it on display. Another one I have, which is my favorite, is is at the beach. When you see a sunrise or a sunset and you look at the clouds and how the light bounces off of that and the water. When you sit and you experience that, you experience this joy. This understanding of one, how small we are, how big God is. And how even creation, the earth, will shout for joy. We see God's goodness in that. Now, we may not have a whole lot of these pictures here in the greater Lafayette area, but we do have some amazing sunsets and some amazing sunrises. And often we are so busy running around that we don't take time to see them. But the earth is constantly shouting for joy, and it can be an encouragement for us to do the same with our lives. I also want to pay attention to verse 2. Another command where it says, serve the Lord with gladness. The joy that we find in the Lord is not a joy that's just supposed to be for us to sit in and to rejoice in. But it should cause us to want to serve God and others with gladness. And if we're honest with each other, we all know what that looks like. Because All of us, at one time or another, have felt like we should, it should be our responsibility to serve, right? So you drive here every week, you see the guys and the gals that are standing out in the cold weather, it's 20 degrees, they don't need to be out there every week, maybe maybe I should go out and work in the parking lot. Or you know what, I come in and I enjoy a cup of coffee every week, so maybe, maybe once a month, Every six weeks, I could, I could maybe come and help clean that up and make that look nice. That's probably what I should do. Or I have five or six kids that are all in the children's ministry, and so I should probably, there are people giving their time and energy there. I should probably do the same, and every once in a while, I'll give some of my time and my energy back there, because if they're going to do that for my kids, I should probably be willing to do that for other people's kids. That's one attitude to have. And if we're honest, we've all been there. We've all served out of guilt or out of a feeling that, well, this is probably what we should do. But what would it look like for us to serve with gladness? Maybe for you, the first time that you came here, you had had a really rough morning. Kids were going crazy. You got in a fight with a boyfriend on your way in. Maybe for you, work was a terrible week and you just, you you had trouble getting up in the morning and you drove in and somebody was standing in the parking lot smiling at you. And that was the first smile you had seen all weekend. 
And it started to set the tone of what your day was going to be here. Then you got here, and you got a warm cup of coffee or a cup of tea. And that started to settle you in here a little bit. So maybe for you, your hope and the way you can serve is to serve with that type of heart. That because someone did that for me, because someone was willing to get here early, prep the coffee, get here early, wear an extra pair of gloves and serve in the parking lot, you want to do the same thing. So in case someone else is having a bad day, you can be that smile that they have, that they see. That you can be the person who provides that cup of coffee that starts to warm their insides a little bit. Or maybe for you, instead of looking at serving in children's ministry as something you should do because you have a lot of kids, but you see it as an opportunity to invest in a kid's life, that you can remember those men and women who served in your children's ministry, who invested in your life, and because they invested in you, you can remember the time that you had the answer that was right, that wasn't just Jesus. When you remembered your memory verse for the first time. And someone said they were proud of you. And what that started to do and the the way that empowered you as a little child. And now you have an opportunity to do the same thing. That you have the opportunity to serve and invest in the next generation in building God's kingdom by being back and investing in that and spending your time and serving there with a glad heart, expecting to see God use and work in your life to bless somebody else. When we serve like that with gladness, it changes the narrative. It makes it more attractive. People want to be around people who are excited and glad to serve, not doing it because, man, I guess we should. It's part of being a Christian or a follower of Jesus. No, we do it because we see a purpose and a vision and a mission behind why we serve and how we serve, and we do it with a joyful heart because of what we've been saved from and what God sustains us through. The joy of the Lord helps us serve out of the overflow of our thanksgivingness, our thankfulness of what God has done. This next section is kind of the meat and potatoes of the psalm. It tells us why we have our joy and thankfulness and where, why they're found in the Lord. Verses 3 and 4 say this, Acknowledge the Lord is God. He made us and we are His, His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give, him, give thanks to Him and bless His name. We see that our peace and our hope and our joy springs up because we are God's people. We can celebrate here because the Lord is God. And that word Lord in the Hebrew is Yahweh, which is their name for God. And by calling him God, by saying Yahweh is God, they're saying that God is in control. That he can be trusted because he made us, he created us, and we are a part of his family. We belong to him. Maybe you're familiar with this phrase, well, they're family. It's a phrase that we use often when maybe there's a relative that you had that requires some extra love and grace that you got to go out of your way for. And you say, well, you know, they're family, so we, we got to do it because it's family. There's a bond that's deeper there. Or maybe it's a wedding that you really don't want to go to. It's far enough away that you're going to have to get a hotel. It's going to be a little bit convenient. Normally you wouldn't go, but you're probably going to go this time. Why? Because they're family. And you need to go and support them. That's what the psalmist is referring to here, that we are part of God's family. That as a church body, we do things for one another as followers of Jesus because we're family. 
There's a deeper bond than just a common acquaintance, but there's an understanding that we are all part of God's family, that we have a seat at the table, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of that, we have a deeper connection to one another. When we read that we are the sheep of his pasture, it reminds me of Jesus' words in John 10. John 10, starting in verse 1, says this. Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them outside, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the stranger's voice. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So Jesus tried again, and Jesus said, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep and the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We can sing songs of joy and thanksgiving because we know that we will be taken care of by the good shepherd. We can move about in this life with peace and ease because we know that God is providing for us and protecting us. The psalmist and Jesus use this word picture of sheep and a shepherd to help us better understand our relationship with God. If you weren't aware, sheep are not the smartest animals. And the shepherd's job is to look after them. And that's just what he does. He finds a place for them to eat, a good place to drink. He protects them from other animals. He guides them to ensure that they only have to think about what they're capable of thinking about. And that's what God does for us if we allow him that space and authority in our lives. We allow him to guide us, to protect us, to provide what we need. And when we do that, we are able to experience a joy that's available to us. He doesn't force it upon us. It's something he invites us into. But when we submit to it and choose to obey what he has called us to do, we realize a weight is lifted and there's a lightness to life that is ours. And we can rejoice and be thankful for that. Because we have a good shepherd who loves us so much. Verse 5 says this, For the Lord is good, his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. When I read this this week and was preparing, the first person that came to my mind was Lisa's grandmother, Mary Ellen Martin. Mary Ellen passed this last year. It was a kind of a tragic situation. She had a heart attack and, and died unexpectedly, and she was extremely healthy before that. The reason I think about her is because of the legacy that she left, the faithfulness that she, that she showed, God's faithfulness through her life. I actually knew Mary Ellen before I knew Lisa. I was friends with Lisa's brother, Kevin, and I'll never forget the first time I met his grandmother. It was spring break in college, and I was in Florida at one part. He was down at his grandmother's condo. And he invited me and some other friends to come down and visit. 
So I drove a couple hours and was there and spent a couple days with them. And I can remember that time very vividly. She was full of joy. She made lasagna that night for dinner, which was my favorite meal that she made. We stayed up late playing games. In the morning, I had her homemade granola. And after I had that homemade granola, my next words to her were, do you have any other granddaughters that I could maybe marry into this family? And luckily, that actually came to fruition. About five years later, I married Lisa. And once we got married, we would go every fall out to Ohio to visit her and her grandfather. And we would sit there, and I can remember sitting and talking with her. And she was a a deep woman of faith. I don't know if you're familiar with Bible Study Fellowship or BSF, but she was heavily involved in that. She oversaw three different states, Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. And she would travel around and train, and train women who were leading other women on how to study and teach the Bible. And so we'd get down, when I, when I would get to Ohio, we would sit and we'd talk theology. We'd talk about different parts of ministry. Then she had this library in her office that she'd go and say, hey, any book you see in there, if you want it, go grab it. It's yours. I loved her. And when she passed this last year at her funeral... So many of her grandkids and children got up and stood and talked about the impact that her faith and her relationship with Jesus had on their lives. The one that I remember most was Lisa's cousin, Joel, who was about two or three weeks away from graduating from seminary. And he got up there with tears in his eyes and he said, you know, what's most difficult about this for me is that I'm not going to be able to give my grandmother a hug after I graduate. Because when he made the choice to go to seminary and to follow the call into ministry, he said, the person I was most excited to tell was my grandma. Maybe for you, you can think of someone who's had a generational impact of faith on your family. That person that you've seen God's faithfulness through their generation and maybe your parents' generation, to you and your siblings, that now if you have kids, it's passed down there. And it's such a good reminder when we have those people in our life of God's faithfulness through the good times and the bad. That word faithfulness in Hebrew there means stability or steadfastness. We rejoice and find joy and celebrate and are full of thanks because we see and read how God has been faithful, stable, and reliable for his people for all generations. That he has been faithful to finish the good work in them and he is faithful to finish the good work that he has started in you and in me. For a moment, think with me. Maybe it's a person Maybe it's a thing, an item that's been handed down to you from, a gener- from someone older. Maybe it's a piece of jewelry or a tool or a quilt. For a moment, pay attention to the feeling that you get when you've held on to that item. Likely, there's some joy that bubbles up inside of you. When you think of the history of that, the things that even that object has been through. Maybe it's because of the legacy that was left by the person who gave it to you. 
The same is true and available for us when we think about the legacy and the faithfulness of God. He has been faithful to his people for centuries. Amidst the turning away, the turning our back, missing the mark, our unfaithfulness, he has been faithful and steady. His love, his mercy, his grace is steady and can be counted on. And that gives me reason to be joyful, to be thankful, to worship and to serve him. Because people have counted on him for centuries and I know that I can count on him as well and count on his faithfulness in my life. It allows me, when I get to those places, for joy to naturally come out of me a little bit more. It helps me to smile a little bit. It helps me to worship a little bit more exuberantly. Our daily training for this week is this. Would like us to go and read and make Psalm 100 our prayer before we start our day this week. So Amy Anthony went on our info hub, which is a site that we have, yourcalvary.info, and there's a card right on the front that says joy. And in that, there are um, some different screenshots that you can take pictures that if you want to keep it on your phone and have a reminder throughout the day, you can do that. Maybe for you, you print it out, you put it on your refrigerator, or you print it out and stick it in your Bible, and the first thing you do in the morning is you allow this to be your prayer. We allow it to be our prayer, that we start our day off with the foundation that we are going to shout to the Lord for for he is good, that we are going to enter his, his courts, enter through his gates with praise because of what he has done in our lives. And when we start our day with a joyful posture, we can see how the rest of our day will change. So please join me in that. Join me in reading this psalm. Allow it to be your prayer at the beginning of your day. Maybe for you it's midday and you need a Read it again. But let's remember his faithfulness to us. Let let that faithfulness be something that springs up joy in our lives. It only takes about 90 seconds to read this psalm. We all have 90 seconds that could change the rest of our day. Today we took a closer look as, as followers of Jesus, that we should probably be a little bit more joyful, a little bit more thankful, a little bit more celebratory. And that we should do that because we are a part of God's family, that we have a seat at his table and we can count on his love and faithfulness. One of the practical ways that we do this is by taking communion together. So here in a moment, the deacons will come and they'll pass out the elements. And during that time, I encourage you to pause for a second. Remember that because of his blood shed on the cross, we are now all blood. That we are family because of how he shed his blood, defeated sin and death on our behalf. And that we can count on his love and his faithfulness. So I'm going to pray here in a second. As I pray, deacons, come forward. They're going to pass out the elements. And as they do that... I encourage you to hold it. And after a little bit of time, I'll come back up and we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray. Father, we love you. 
we thank you that we can be called sons and daughters, that we are a part of your family. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, my prayer for us this week is that we would see glimpses of you throughout our day that would spring up joy in our hearts, that would overflow in how we love and how we serve others. Father, give us a kingdom vision and a kingdom mission for what you are calling us to, what we're a part of. Help us join you in that. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.